I'm Henry Standage, and you're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. All walks of life share one inherent core mission. Find a competent mating partner and reproduce. And while courtship can feel nervous and awkward and uncomfortable, the truth is, as strange as it sounds, you were born to do it. Today's guest on the podcast, Dr. Amanda Merring from the Department of Biology, studies the trials and tribulations of courtship and studies the genetic basis for mating behavior. She uses fruit flies as a model system. Today, she comes onto the podcast to talk about her work. What extent are sexual preferences and the opportunities we are granted in that domain predetermined by genetics? That's a very interesting question because we actually don't know percentage-wise what amount is genetic versus environment because we still know so little about the genetics underlying sexual preference behaviors. So, of course, when people hear about this, the first thing they think of is humans, what makes a female like a male or a female or both or neither, uh, and vice versa for a male, what makes those preferences arise? And that sort of higher question that people think about, we, we know almost nothing about because humans are really terrible to work on. If you're interested in genetics, you're very limited in what you can do. And so we get at this question using other systems, and in doing that, it's a bit indirect, trying to get then at relating those answers back to humans. So what we do know from the other animals that we've worked on is that those preference behaviors are very strongly determined by genetics with input from the environment. So it's a mix of both. And what amount of that is genetic versus environment varies from circumstance to circumstance and from species to species. Just to backtrack to what you said at the beginning, why is it that humans are so horrible to work on? Uh, The reason why humans are very difficult to work on for the kinds of questions I'm interested in, which are genetics and neural basis of behaviors, are because the ways that we can really get at those questions, you just can't do in humans. So people frown on it if you want to mutate humans and see what happens. Um, or if you want to hyperactivate or silence certain neurons and then dissect them to see what happens, right? So the kinds of things that we can do in model systems for obvious ethical reasons, we we can't do those in humans. And that really limits the kinds of ways that you can get at those questions. And the easiest ways to get at them, we just can't do in humans. And so it's much uh, more efficient to do those kinds of questions in model systems where we can use those tools. Why do we know so little about the genetic basis for courtship and mating behavior? So we actually know a fair bit about the genetic basis of certain aspects of courtship behavior in some model systems. So we know the kinds of genes that make uh, males have a certain kind of courtship song um, in the model system that's most often used for these, which is fruit flies, Drosophila. Um, And the reason that's such a big model system is because of all these fantastic tools that we can use. So we know a fair bit about that. Um, We don't know much about the reception of those cues, so what's underlying how a female perceives those cues, and then whether she sees them as favorable or not. And a big reason why we know less about that is is sort of two main reasons. One is because um, male courtship behaviors are much flashier, they're easier to score, you can really see them, what's happening there. Whereas female receptivity behaviors tend in most species to be a bit more subtle, and so they're a little bit 
um, more subtle to quantify, and that makes them a little bit less exciting for researchers who are looking at these very flashy, colorful behaviors versus a female simply being receptive or not. The other layer, I said there were two, is because historically the people who worked in these fields, it was a whole lot of old white men. And so they viewed things through that lens, and so for them the male behaviors were the thing worth pursuing. Um, it's only more recently that exploring female behavior has become a much larger field and in terms of people's interest, and that's because in most species it's the female that decides whether or not copulation occurs. And so if you're interested in things that define whether or not mating occurs, it's actually the female behaviors that should be what are looked at, even though they are more subtle. So it's a, an interesting shift in perspective. You mentioned uh, fruit flies in that answer, which is something I want to talk about. Uh, the courtship process for fruit flies is especially essential. Why is that? Well, I would say the courtship process in most species is essential. Um, there's been strong selective pressure on, uh, typically it's males, to convince females to mate uh, due to sexual selection. And the reason for that is because females invest more in offspring usually. So the eggs are larger, they require more energy investment. If there's parental care, it's more often provided by the female. Um, there are a number of ways that females invest more in the offspring, which makes them choosier. And then the males have to convince them to mate with them. And males can mate with multiple females and increase how many offspring they produce, whereas a female is limited by how many eggs she can produce. So mating with many, many males doesn't dramatically change her reproduction. And so all of that courtship behavior that occurs is critical for uh, females to make sure that she is mating with the best male that she can to make the best offspring. And for males, it's to convince the female that he is that male that she wants to mate with in order to produce their offspring. And all of that centers around an organism's fitness, that an organism only, we always learn about Darwin's survival of the fittest, but in reality, it's survival of the fittest to produce offspring that then go on to produce offspring. That you could be fantastically fit, but if you have no offspring, your fitness is zero, your genes end with you. So I guess you get a little bit of them through your relatives passing on similar genes, but it's very contingent upon that mating and producing of offspring. So there's very strong selection at that level, which causes both females to be very choosy in assessing the males and the males to really work hard to try and convince the females to mate with them. Right, and it seems like fruit flies are especially interesting because they have these variety of tools that they can use in this process. Fruit flies are, are fascinating in that the, um, in terms of their mating behavior, that males perform a whole courtship ritual. So they approach the female, they'll tap her, which is a transfer of tactile and chemical cues. Uh, they will extend one wing and vibrate it with a courtship song that the females like or don't like. Um, they'll lick the female, is another transfer of tactile and chemical cues. Um, they even drum their abdomen on the surface of the ground where they are, providing some vibrationary cues for the substrate. And all of these things the female assess and decide whether or not copulation occurs because in fruit flies there is no rape. It's completely up to the female whether or not copulation occurs. So if the male is not convincing, the female simply walks away and copulation never occurs. What role does a chemical substance such as a pheromone play in this interaction? Yeah, so pheromones are really interesting in that they, um, what we've learned most recently about pheromones is that they are not necessarily always a cue that has to be present to elicit a positive response, but you have to have the absence of the wrong pheromone. So if you have a male who smells really bad, that will prevent courtship and copulation from being successful. Um, whereas if he just smells like nothing, that's often okay. That it's actually okay if there's no 
pheromone cue as long as the cues that are present are the right cues. So in fruit flies, the pheromones that they use are always present. So they're these, uh, I'll get technical, they're these long chain hydrocarbons, but they're essentially long molecules that stick to the surface of their outer skin, their cuticle. And that's where I, I mentioned earlier that mating behavior and the males tapping the females, there's a lot of transfer of those chemical cues um, when there's contact, physical contact between the male and the female, because these, um, most of them are not volatile, they're not airborne. And so it's only when they touch that the female actually senses those chemical cues and the male senses the cues from the female. How do you observe and test this courting process in the lab? Yeah, so the great thing about working with a model system is that you can really control all of the things around that interaction, um, which means you can adjust things to really get at the individual questions you, you want to work at. So in the lab, we take males and females who are sexually naive, so they're virgin, they've never made it, and we do this to control for variation that might have occurred in how long ago they made it, how many times they made it. If they're all naive, then at least we can control that variable. Uh, we place them together in a mating arena, and then we observe what their behaviors are. So does the male court the female? Uh, how quickly does he court her? Is she receptive to him or rejecting? So females show rejection behaviors. They can kick at the males. Um, they will either spread their wings or not in order to be receptive to the male. Um, and same with you had mentioned the covering. There's a vaginal plate, which also is something that they have to open or spread to allow the male to copulate. And so you can observe all of these interactions and the types of interactions we observe and how long we observe them for varies depending on the question that we're asking. How does a male fruit fly that's never internalized or faced this idea of rejection before come to understand that it's being rejected by a female fruit fly? So that um, question of how is behavior innately produced um, is, is exactly the kind of question that people are trying to ask and answer. Um, so why does a male know, and know in kind of air quotes, um, to even court a female? What, how does he know to extend his wing and vibrate it to make the song? Um, how does a female know that that song is a good song and a different male's song is not a good song? So how do they know these? And we know that these in fruit flies are innate perceptions and behaviors because if we isolate flies um, before they ever become flies, so they're individual, they've never experienced another fly, they still show these behaviors. So they're not learned behaviors and that's how we know that they have a genetic basis. And so that's, a, that's an excellent question because it's exactly the question that we hope to answer, which is what causes these innate behaviors at the genetic level, at the neural level? How are they built? How do you get something to occur that way? And we don't, we don't know the answer to that except pieces, right? So we're piecing together that puzzle inside of that black box right now of, of trying to answer those questions. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because humans, we have conscience and it's, it's very trial and error, I think, as we grow up and we come to learn what situation means what. And I think without that running conscience, it'd be it's really an interesting question. And, and I think humans are interesting in that we do have higher order thinking, which flies actually, flies actually have a fair bit of, of thinking of their own. So they have memory and learning and, and lots of other components, um, but certainly not to the extent of humans. But I think even in humans, there are some innate components to the behaviors that we produce and to our perceptions of cues. So it's a, a really strong mix of that genes and environment that give rise to that. Um, and what's really interesting is that perception um, we know can change due to experience as well. So for example, I'll use fruit flies first as an example. If a male courts a female that's recently mated, she'll reject him constantly. She doesn't want to mate. She's not ready to mate. And when you place him then, so he's getting rejected over and over. 
And when you place him then with a new female who's a virgin female, she's very receptive, he doesn't even court her because he just he's learned recently that this is a waste of time and he's going to have this refractory period before he'll try courting again. You can think of the same kind of concept in humans. Of course, it's hard not to sort of extrapolate these to humans. Um, but even more so, we can think of um, maybe you've uh, met someone and they're interested in you, but you just can't find them attractive because they remind you of your ex, right? I mean, so even those experiences that we have can really flavor our perception of potential mating partners, uh, even in more recent contexts versus when we were children. Yeah, she kind of answered my last question a bit there, but what can we take from your research and apply to other organisms? Well, and I, I think that's actually a really good question to address directly, um, which is why, why work on fruit flies and what do we actually learn from that when we do that? And um, I touched on this a bit earlier, but the reason to work on these model systems is the amazing ability to get at these questions of what are the kinds of genes, what pathways do they act in, what kinds of neurons are affected, um, are behaviors due to differences in perception or differences in processing those cues or integrating those cues? And so the model systems allow us to actually ask those questions and answer them in a reasonable way. And then how we can relate those back to humans is not that I think that the exact gene I find in a fruit fly will be the exact gene in a human, but it might be that the same kinds of pathways and the same kinds of processes are what are happening in humans and it gives a starting point so that you're not just approaching humans with a black box and no idea what to even address, particularly for something like behavior where really it could be anything. I mean, if you think about the genes for behavior, you could pick any gene in the genome and I could give you a description of how that gene could potentially affect behavior because so many things can influence behavior. And so model systems give a great starting point of where to start when you're looking at more complex systems like humans. And so that's what we're trying to do with the fly is find certain pathways and processes that can then be used as a template for asking these same questions in more complex systems. That was my interview with Dr. Amanda Maring. I think she articulated really well what makes this idea of courtship so alluring and interesting across different species. Humans are highly self-aware conscious beings, and even we have so much going on below the surface. So imagine how much we can learn about mating from more primal creatures, such as fruit flies. I'm Henry Standage signing out. Thanks for listening.